years and go through the parables of Jesus. And uh, because I get to pick the passages, I picked my favorite one this morning. So uh, it's going to be something about me. Uh, with that in mind, open up to Mark chapter 4, uh, verses 26 through 29. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to grab one of those blue hardback Bibles all throughout the room. Uh, what I say will pass away, but the Word of God it will remain forever. Let's look at Mark chapter 4, the parable of the seed growing, or many could call it the parable of the patient and poised farmer. Friends, hear the words of Jesus Christ to us. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, only each sprout and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain of the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest is Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will remain forever. Let him who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open as we pray together? Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are present here among us. Spirit, I pray that we would keep in step with you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the kingdom of God and ears to hear the voice of Jesus himself. Him we would see and not another, and him would we hear and no one else. Jesus, speak through your word. In your name we pray, amen. Can anybody tell me whose painting this is? Anybody, uh, art aficionado? Anybody know who that is? Vincent van Gogh, yeah. Vincent van Gogh was a, a Dutchman. Uh, anyone here Dutch? Who's Dutch in the room? And if, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. <laughs> I knew the Dutchman would know that. I am not Dutch, in case you're wondering. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, Vincent van Gogh was a famous painter. He was famous for doing what? Cutting his ear off. And what else? How did he die? Many people think it was a suicide. Uh, he was famous for painting. Uh, but did you know that Vincent van Gogh's uncle was a Reformed pastor? He was a Calvinist pastor. Did you know that Vincent van Gogh's father was a Reformed pastor? Did you know that his grandfather was also a pastor? Did you know that Vincent van Gogh, as a young adult, served as a missionary to poor miners? And that he wrote his friends that all he really wanted to do was proclaim the gospel to the poor. One of his favorite books was The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. Some of you have read that. It was written, I don't know, about 800 years ago, about how to imitate the life of Jesus. Uh, Vincent van Gogh was really shaped by uh, one of the most famous preachers, an evangelical Baptist preacher, if you can believe it. An evangelical Baptist preacher was one of his biggest spiritual influences. His name was Charles Spurgeon. Uh, we don't think about Vincent van Gogh as a Christian artist. Uh, usually I don't like titles like that because I think there's just art. You know, the person uh, may or may not be a Christian. But a lot of the paintings of van Gogh, actually you could look at them through the lens of a religious faith. So knowing all that about his dad, his uncle, his granddad, his love of Charles Spurgeon, his uh, early life as a Christian missionary to poor, you know, it kind of makes you look at his paintings a little differently, Right. Why do you think he kept painting churches? 
Or, you know, later in his life, he was so captivated by the life of Jesus that as he got closer to the time of his death, he actually started to paint just more overtly religious paintings. So this is the, a painting of the Pieta, the, you know, the, the corpse of Jesus coming down from the cross and who's holding him, uh, Mother Mary, that is in the Vatican archives. Uh, this painting right here, anybody want to guess what this is? It's a parable. It's a parable. The parable of the Good Samaritan. You see the Good Samaritan taking the broken man and putting him on his own uh, animal. And then if you look closely on the left-hand side, you may notice that there are two men walking away from uh, the man. Those are the priest and the Levite in the parable. Uh, you know, it's really hip right now to like sort of uh, do some like, I don't know, revisionist history of paintings. You know, you may have heard of the Da Vinci Code and all that, where they try to find hidden meanings in, in famous paintings. Uh, but this is actually uh, pretty uh, well thought of by scholars. A lot of people have argued that this is what? The Last Supper. That this was Vincent van Gogh's rendition of The Last Supper, because if you look, there seems to be light emanating from a man standing up in white, and he's doing what? He's serving a meal. He's serving as a waiter to how many people? A dozen. Although one of them's leaving. I wonder why he's leaving the dinner party. Kind of makes you see this parable a little differently, doesn't it? I mean, excuse me, painting. Jesus' most famous parable, the parable of the sower, we'll talk about it next week, talked about how there was a guy who was broadcasting seed. You know, that's literally where the word broadcast comes from. Broadcasting seed, and some seed fell on, what was it again? The pathway. And what got, what got the seed from the pathway? I can't remember. Oh, yeah, the birds. Funny that they're birds in that painting, aren't they? They're flying away. You know, of all Van Gogh's paintings, I guess the one I'm going to keep coming back to this morning is this one, because uh, it's a guy with a sickle, and we often don't see sickles anymore. But this is a guy at harvest time, a poor farmer. And we're going to look at this picture a few times this morning. And, and the reason I share all this with you, with Vincent Van Gogh, is what I want to suggest to you, friend, is that there was something, something about the life and the teachings of Jesus that captivated Van Gogh from the time that he was a young teenager to the time that he had his untimely death. His paintings only got more overtly religious as he got older. And what I want to suggest to you is that Vincent Van Gogh saw God speaking both in the words of Scripture but also in everyday life. And friends, what I want to suggest to you even further is that is exactly how Jesus himself saw life that God spoke through the inerrant words of Scripture, but God also spoke in everyday things. Uh, I love this quote from Van Gogh. He said, if one feels the need of something grand, something infinite, something that makes one feel aware of God, one need not go very far to find it. That's how Vincent Van Gogh saw the world. And friends, what I want to suggest to you is that's also how Jesus saw the world. You know, um, there's a guy named Tim Mackey. Uh, you may have heard of him. He has a PhD in Hebrew, and uh, he founded something called the Bible Project. Anybody ever watch the videos of the Bible Project online? Uh, Tim Mackey, talking about the parables, uh, pointed out something that was so beautiful. He said, what other ancient person do people still talk about and know intimately? 
I mean, who else could be on the category of Jesus? I mean, the things that Jesus said and taught and did, they still stay with us. Even when you're not even a Christian, we know the sayings of Jesus. He's the most important person in human history. You don't even have the faith to believe me with that. I mean, some of the people in the room aren't even Christians. And friends, if you're not a Christian, you don't even have to be a Christian to understand that Jesus is the most important person that has ever walked on earth. And you today can still hear his teachings. You know why? Because Jesus spoke in ways that were memorable. He would say things that would stick with you. He would say, you know what God's kingdom is like? It's like a guy who just throws some seed on the ground, and he, does, he goes to sleep. He wakes up. He doesn't know how it's growing, and then one day the harvest is here, and buddy, he's ready when it does. Turn the other cheek. The teachings of Jesus still stay with us. And what I want to suggest to you is he's the most important person, whether you believe in him or not, or you're still trying to make up your mind. But friends, what I can suggest to you is there was something about the way that Jesus saw life that captivated our most artistic people in history, people like Van Gogh. And they can captivate people like you and me. So with all that to say, you know, what is Jesus doing in these parables? I mean, what is it exactly that Jesus is doing? If we're going to understand the teachings of Jesus, you don't just need me to explain it to you. You actually need to interact at some level with what Jesus himself actually said. I mean, this is, you know, um, I know it sounds funny, but, you know, Jesus said things like you should love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And all he was really doing was quoting what? Deuteronomy. But friends, notice that he says, love God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind. (laughs) God gave you a brain and he wants you to use it. You know, um, there's all kind of communication theory, you know, now about how to speak so that people listen to you and all that stuff, you know, and how to do public speaking. And, you know, what's like the number one rule in public speaking, you think? What's like the number one rule? Be clear. Be clear. Help people understand, right? Put things on the low shelf. And yet Jesus, the greatest communicator of all time, the most important thought leader of all time, the one who claimed to be truth itself, you know what he does? He was like, hmm, sometimes a seed goes into the ground and it dies, but then it produces life. You got it? And we're like, what? What does that mean? Jesus spoke sometimes in complicated ways. He spoke in parables. Now, what is it that Jesus is doing in parables? Why does this become Jesus' favorite way of teaching? Why is Jesus' favorite way of teaching? I mean, do you track what I'm saying? What I'm suggesting to you to consider is Jesus is the most important person in history, whether you believe in him or not. And the main way that he began to teach as his ministry grew and developed over time was he used parables, little pithy short stories with a punch in the end. And those have carried with us through human history since the time that he spoke them. And if you're going to understand who Jesus is, you've got to understand something about what these stories are telling us and how to hear them. But before we maybe dive into, you know, what this specific parable is about, uh, it is my favorite parable, remember? This is my favorite parable. It's only recorded in the Gospel of Mark, you know? Good job, Mark. Thank you for writing this one down. But before we go into maybe what this specific parable is, I think, telling us. I do want to answer another question you may be thinking, which is, why did Jesus at all teach this way? I mean, really think about it. If Jesus were going to change the world, which is what he set out to do and he accomplished, if Jesus were going to tell people about the kingdom of God, 
why would he use strange stories that he just seems to be making up on the spot about everyday life things? Why did he speak in parables? Well, you know, the first answer I can give you is he spoke in parables because people love stories. People love stories, and they remember stories. You know, um, what's the seventh commandment? Anybody remember that one? It's great. So, I, so anyone ever served on a committee? Have you ever had the privilege of serving on a committee? I used to serve on a committee, and that committee interviewed potential pastors for their ordination, and it was awesome because they were terrified, and I could make them more terrified. <laughs> and I would ask them questions, you know, like really hard questions, you know, and I'd say things like, do you know the Ten Commandments? And what would they say? They would say yes. And then what would I say? Can you please name them in order? I'll never forget this pastor was like, oh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Commandment number one. And I was like, let me just stop you right there. That's not the first commandment. Good theology, but it's not the first commandment. Okay, well, if you don't know what the seventh commandment is, and maybe like 10% of you do know the seventh commandment, let me ask you this. Uh, what do you know about King David? What do you know about King David? What did he do? He saw this woman bathing where? On a roof. Ooh, funny that you remember that for some reason. What was she wearing? <laughs> Nothing. Story's just getting good. David sleeps with her. He commits adultery. He then plots a murder of her husband, and then he marries her. She eventually goes on to give birth to another son named Solomon, who you may know. It's like the author of many of the Proverbs. Now, let's say your job, God wanted you to go confront King David because he's a murderer, murderer and he is an adulterer. He's broken two commandments. One of them being the seventh, adultery. How would you go about speaking truth to power? How would you go about telling King David, hey, you just murdered a guy and he had you know, sex with his wife? How would you say that? Well, you know, if you read the Old Testament, a guy, some of you know it, a guy named Nathan, goes up and he says, hey, uh, King David, I, we got a problem in the kingdom. And he says, there was this guy, he was really rich, he was such a jerk. He was trying to throw a potty. And you know what he did? He stole this poor man's only sheep, only lamb. And he slaughtered this guy's pet lamb and he fed it to his friends. And now this poor guy has nothing. Nothing. What should happen? Injustice. And what does King David say? What should happen to the man? The man should die. And then what does Nathan say? You're the man. You are the man. You know, Jesus spoke in parables because, one, they're memorable. Nobody can quite remember the seventh commandment says, thou shalt not commit adultery, but you sure as heck can remember that David committed adultery. And then that was wrong. Stories, um, they come through the back door. They come through the back door. You know, but Jesus goes on and he tells us why he, you know, spoken in a, in a strange way with these parables. One, people were familiar with them. They understood parables. They knew what Jesus getting, was getting at. But Jesus even tells us why he spoke in this way. Look down at Mark chapter 4, you know, the chapter that our parable comes in. Let's look at the broader context. Jesus tells us why he speaks in these sort of pithy stories with a punch at the end. And look at verse 10. 
Mark chapter 4, verse 10 says, and when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. <laughs> They're like, uh, Jesus, why do you keep telling us these strange stories that nobody understands? You know, they're like, what's going on? What is this about? And Jesus said to them, to you, it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. And then Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest I, they turn from their sin and I forgive them. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? You see, what Jesus is saying is somehow by explaining the kingdom of God to us, which is Jesus' mission, to explain the kingdom, he's going to communicate it in a way that is so clear that we can understand who God is. And he's going to do it in a way that's so confusing that I can listen but not actually hear it. And I can see it, but I don't understand what I'm seeing. Now, does that sound all that clear to you? So what is, why does Jesus speak in this way? Well, you know, the uh, American poet Emily Dickinson has a great quote. Uh, she has a poem called, Tell All the Truth But Tell It Slant. <laughs> and I think this is what Jesus does in his parables. He tells all of the truth, but he tells it slant. He doesn't burst down the front door of our souls and force his way in. He knocks on the back door. She wrote, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. The truth must dazzle gradually or else everybody would just be blind. So I think this is what Jesus is doing in his parables. He's entering in through the back door because our defenses are up. We don't want to rethink our lives. We don't really want to think that we may have things that we need to repent of. We may not want to realize that we're the ones who need to express forgiveness to others. And so what Jesus does is he goes around our defenses and knocks quietly and gently on the back door. He tells all the truth of the gospel, but he tells it slant. You know, uh, it's been said before that uh, a sermon series on the parables is every young preacher's dream and every seasoned preacher's nightmare. <laughs> They can be notoriously hard to understand. You know, thinking about the parables to me is like, it's like trying to like understand the sun. I know it's there and I understand what it is, but if I were to stare directly at it, <laughs> it would just blind me. It'd be too dazzling, right? And so the closer you and I look at the parables, sometimes it can seem to frustrate us. But if you're frustrated and confused, you are right on track, friend. That is exactly where the disciples were. And this is why they stay with us forever. So all that to say, let's look down now at our parable. How are we supposed to understand this short little parable? So what I want to do is uh, give you a quick rule about how to understand the parables. So, you know, if you and I were reading the parables, how is it that we're supposed to understand them? Um, you know, the first thing you need to know is parables are not allegories. Every single detail is not meant to be sort of understood super profoundly. Parables were probably most likely given... Um, extemporaneously. Jesus just sort of on the spot while he's preaching to thousands of people who could just get up and walk away and never listen to him again. He was trying to capture their attention and he would do things like, hey, there's a, there's a farmer. You know, imagine there's a farmer and this happens to him. You know, he would use the surrounding uh, environment around him to, to humbly communicate these things. But the way to understand a parable, I think, what I would suggest to you is try to listen to it and find the, the hook or the turn in the story. And try to figure out what is the one thing in your mind 
that is supposed to spark in your mind by the story. The one thing. Does that make sense? Um, I'll give you a thought example. Um, the parable of the Good Samaritan is about what? What's the point of that story? What, what, sorry, what's that? Loving people. Yes, that's the point of the story. Who is my neighbor? And how does Jesus answer it? Well, what's the point? Anybody. Anybody that needs help. Now, St. Augustine, you know his interpretation of the Good Samaritan? St. Augustine said that Jesus was the Good Samaritan. The man who's broken is the poor sinner. And the Jewish laws and the Old Testament covenants cannot heal broken sinners. That's why the priest and the Levite walk away. Because the Old Testament covenants can't help us. What we need is the new covenant of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus comes along as a good Samaritan. He puts us on his horse and he takes us where? To an inn. And the inn is what? To Augustine. The church. And then he gives the innkeeper two things. Two coins. What are the two coins? The sacraments of baptism and communion. And then the Good Samaritan says what? Take care of these broken sinners until I return. So the Good Samaritan is even about the return of Christ. And it's even about the sacraments. Okay, so when a guy comes up to Jesus and he's like, hey, do I have to like all these idiots around me or just the good people? And Jesus says, let me tell you this story about the Good Samaritan. You think he's trying to explain the sacraments to us in that moment? Probably not. So we can over allegorize the parables. We can find too much meaning in the hidden things. So what I want to suggest to you is when you hear this parable, what is the idea, the simple idea that Jesus is trying to communicate to you in this simple story? So what I want us to do is I'm going to read the parable again, but this time what I want you to do is I want you to just look at the Van Gogh, if you will. What is Jesus trying to communicate? Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and this seed sprouts and grows. <laughs> he doesn't know how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, whoosh, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Now what in the world is that about? Well, what I want to suggest to you is that what this parable is about is it is about having hope in this life. This is a parable about hope. And it's primarily a parable about the kingdom of God. You know how certain people have like certain stories they just keep telling and retelling? You probably are that way yourself, right? You know, you get around people long enough keep telling the same stories over and over again you know i mean i've got certain themes that i try to hit on every sermon you know things like jesus and the gospel grace that kind of stuff what do you think jesus's number one sermon topic is what do you think jesus keeps coming back to what is the gravitational center of jesus's teachings the kingdom of god the kingdom of god the kingdom of god you just prayed your kingdom come what in the world was that about? What is the kingdom of God? It is Jesus' number one topic, far and away. Every other topic, they all, that is like the hub of all the spokes of Jesus' teaching. So this parable is about the kingdom of God. 
In fact, almost all of the parables, Jesus will say, the kingdom of God is like a dragnet. The kingdom of God is like a sower with four kinds of soil. The kingdom of God is like a guy who, you know, plants some seed, he sleeps, he wakes up, he doesn't know what's going on underneath the surface, but then one day the harvest is here and he's ready for it. So what is the kingdom of God? What is Jesus' main topic? Well, I think the easiest way to understand the kingdom of God is to remember these three simple things. The kingdom of God is about a king, it is about a people, and it is about a place. To be a kingdom, there has to be a king. Who's the king? Jesus is the king of the kingdom, God himself. And this is Jesus' main topic. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Jesus' first words in the Gospel of Mark. What Jesus is saying is that there is a new way of life that is not shaped by the politics of this day, that is not shaped by the nations of this world. All of the other nations of this world will fall away, and what will be remain standing at the end will only be the kingdom of God. Friends, what you and I live for is not a city made of hands. We seek the city that is to come. This is what all the great patriarchs in the Old Testament look forward to. This is what Abraham worked for. Not a city built with human hands, but a city built on what? Who knows the book of Hebrews? A city built by God himself. The eternal city. The Old Testament called it Zion. The city of God. And people from every nation, language, and tribe could somehow be citizens of Zion. Jesus says the city of God has come. The kingdom is here and I am the king of the kingdom. You see, Jesus is inaugurating a different way of life that you and I have never known and cannot know unless we are born of the Holy Spirit. You and I, we are tossed like waves in the sea. You know, uh, the world around us shapes our moral imagination, and it shapes what we think is right and what we think is wrong. I mean, isn't it amazing that, like, you can find exactly the right kind of political take on the nightly news? Isn't that funny? you got people who think just like you. Or is it that you and I are shaped by the world more than we often think? You see, what Jesus says is there is something that can shape you so much that it's like you've been reborn. You've been born over again. Somebody pressed reset completely, and you're born of the Spirit. And the way that you enter into that new way of life is you come to faith in Jesus, and you become a citizen of his kingdom. Jesus is your king. See, this is why it's about a king and it's about a people, because the kingdom of God is not based on whether you are a man or a woman, whether you have light-colored skin or dark-colored skin, or whether you are rich or poor, or you are married into the right kind of family, or you are married into, you know, your in-laws kind of family. <laughs> the kingdom of God is a people group from every nation, language, and tribe who bowed the knee to King Jesus. We are citizens of a different world. Our ultimate identity and foundation is not the politics of our age. It's the kingdom of God. And then Jesus says there's something about the place that this happens. I mean, when you and I pray that the kingdom of God would come, what does Jesus teach us to pray? Your kingdom come where? On earth as it is in heaven. That means that the kingdom of God, whether you realize it or not, is actually here somehow. At work, the kingdom of God, friend, is at work today. It hasn't fully come, 
but it is here. And our prayer is that more and more the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God. Friends, this new way of life that's shaped by King Jesus, that finds our identity with the people who bow the knee to him, who live in this world today, not in some future world and not just some in some ancient world where faith was possible, but today, that's the kingdom of God. And it's hard to think about. It's like staring at the sun. But friends, Jesus is talking about this constantly. So what does this parable then teach us about that new way of life that's possible by faith? We'll look at verse 26. Jesus says, This kingdom of God that we access by faith in the risen Lord Jesus is like this. The kingdom of God, you know what it's like? It's like a farmer who plants some seeds. And then he takes a nap, and then he wakes up. Drink some coffee. A couple years go by. But then one day, harvest comes. And he's ready for it. Friends, this is a story about hope. I talk to a lot of people today, I don't think they have hope. I mean, I really think they believe it's all doom and gloom until the end. It's all terrible until Jesus comes back. Things were better in yesteryear. Things are terrible today. But friends, how do you square that way of looking at life with this parable? Friend, do you have hope anymore? You may think, I put the seed in the ground, nothing's showing. But what does Jesus say? That's not how the kingdom works. You know what the kingdom of God is like? It's like seed and it goes in the ground. And it may take a long time. But something's growing. You can't see it. You can't force it. Does the farmer cause the thing to happen? No, all he's doing is he's waking up and sleeping. He rises night and day. He doesn't even understand what's going on beneath the surface. You see, friends, I think what Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom is that you and I are meant to be people of hope, that God is at work in ways that we don't understand and that we do not see but he is already there. You know, this past week has been a pretty, pretty bad week. I was just in Birmingham, Alabama, doing my granddad's funeral, and there was a church shooting. Did you hear about that? There's been a lot of shootings lately in our country. Uh, some people, some Episcopalians, God bless them, were at a Wednesday night Bible study, and a guy came in and killed two of them. You maybe didn't hear about it. Also last week or so, uh, there were some college students in Iowa And like our church, they get their college students together over the summer because all the college students come back, you know, home for the summer, and they get the college students together. And in Ames, Iowa, a guy showed up at that college ministry, and he shot two girls dead. And then he turned the gun on himself. Now, there's a pastor named Solomon, Rexius, and Solomon had to do the funerals for those two girls that were shot in Iowa. 
And he wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition this past week. And uh, it's a powerful article about having hope. And, you know, he said this. He said, whenever you are walking in a confusing, scary, or painful moment, and friends, that describes a lot of people in this room right now. I know some of it. I don't know all of it. But there are a lot of people in a severe moment of affliction. Or you're just in a long period of long disappointment. Solomon, after giving these two funerals, wrote, whenever you are walking in a confusing, scary, or painful moment, it is helpful to remember Jesus is already there. He didn't bring Jesus. Jesus was already there at the funerals. Friends, you don't see it. You do not cause it. You do not make it happen. The kingdom of God is advancing. There is hope. God is doing things in lives that you cannot see. You are the farmer. God is causing seeds to grow out of dead things. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny that God would create a world where dead, decomposing soil is the very ground that new growth spurts out of? So what does this look like? Well, let me tell you how, why this is my favorite parable. Why is this my favorite parable? Well, um, it's my favorite parable because, you know, I really love you, and I pray for our church often, and I wake up at night, and I'm stressed out. <laughs> Anyone just wake up stressed out? And I'm stressed out about the spiritual state of our church, and I'm stressed out about the spiritual state of individuals who may or may not be following Christ at any moment, I am uh, also very stressed out about the state of the church. Uh, if you're not paying attention to the news, it's a really bad time right now for the church. There is scandal and uh, betrayal of Christ left and right, often by spiritual leaders. It's a bad time for the church, right? And it stresses me out. And uh, I, don't, I don't have a life verse, really, but uh, right now, if I had a life verse, it would be 2 Corinthians 11.28, because it just mm, speaks to my soul. Because Paul's talking about his life, and he's opening up, and he's talking about all the things that stress him out. And then I love 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. It just gets me, because he says, and apart from all of these other things that are stressing him out, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. <laughs> and I'm like, amen, Paul, preach it. That's right. You know, when I, you know, when I get into these moments of anxiety, I mean, anxiety is really a, a, uh, an inability to be present. You know, it's like I'm watching the soil, and I'm just thinking, there's something I can do to make it grow. But is that really how the kingdom of God works? Or think about it this way. Can you really change people? So what are we supposed to do? Number one, friend, I would say, hold on to hope. God is doing something in your life. If you are a Christian, it is not doom and gloom until the end. Friend, sanctification is a work of God's free grace, whereby you and I are renewed in the inner man more and more so that we die to sin and live to righteousness and are made into the image of Jesus. The upward trajectory of our life is not doom and gloom. It is an upward trajectory the kingdom of God is growing and its roots are going into the cracks in the soil of our hard hearts. 
and it's breaking up our hard hearts and creating new growth. There is hope, but it's not in the things that you can see. It's not in the things that you and I do. It is a hope in the Holy Spirit of God who is at work in believers. So number one, hold out on hope. And then let me just finish with this. How do we respond? You know, I love the parable because, you know, all the guy can do, you know, the farmer, all he can really do is when the harvest is ready, he has a sickle out. And so, you know, when I think about the sickle being ready, I'm like, okay, what can I do in the meantime? Well, I'm hoping and praying that God will work in my family, or I'm hoping and praying that God will work in my health, or I'm hoping and praying that God will do something about my career or my marriage or these wounds. What are we supposed to do? Uh, Well, friends, what I would suggest to you lastly is what you and I are, are called to do is we are called to make sure that we are sharpening our sickles. I had to practice saying that. That was really hard to say. Sharpening our sickles. Right? We want to be ready for when the harvest has come. How do we sharpen the sickle? Well, you know, friends, the only way that I know to really respond to the anxiety, my stress that I feel for, for you and also the church is, it sounds so basic because it is, but so is a piece of metal on metal, is I pray. I go to the Lord in prayer. And I pray for you by name, I pray for these situations, and I mean, it sounds so simple. But I love, uh, William Temple was the former Archbishop of Canterbury, head of the Church of England, and he has this great little saying. He says, when I pray, coincidences happen, but when I don't, they don't. Friends, that is so true. When we pray, things happen. It's the strangest thing. I was just sharpening my sickle, and then there's a little spurt of new growth. Friends, what we do is we sharpen our sickles, we hold out on hope, we hold out on prayer. You know, Van Gogh, uh, you know, he died under unusual circumstances, right? You know, we all know he cut off his, part of his ear, but, you know, his death has always been kind of a mystery. You know, a lot of people believe that he killed himself because he died of a gunshot wound. Uh, but recently, a lot of uh, very smart people have been researching the forensics around his death, and what they noticed in the police reports was actually there was never gunpowder found anywhere near Van Gogh. And also, there was no gun. So for a guy who shot himself, he somehow managed to evade the gunpowder and somehow remove the gun from the room. And so there's a guy named Dr. Havlicek who's recently written a biography on Van Gogh, and what he actually has found is actually there were two boys in Van Gogh's community who later on admitted to harassing Van Gogh, and they also admitted to, guess what? target shooting near his house. In fact, Havlicek argues that, uh, you know, he says that one of the boys wrote a confessional years later saying and admitting that they were harassing Van Gogh, and the boy didn't admit to shooting him, but he did say that he did things to him that he wished he had never done. Uh, Van Gogh didn't die immediately of the gunshot wound. He lingered for two days. And then when he was interviewed by the police, you know what he said? I'm hurt, but I don't blame anybody else. Havlicek, in his exhaustive biography, argues that there were many times in Van Gogh's life where he extended grace to people who had wronged him and had covered their iniquities 
And Havlicek argues that would be exactly in Van Gogh's character, to know that these two boys who had harassed him accidentally shot him, but he wouldn't turn them in. Is that how Van Gogh's life ended? We don't know. Is that why Van Gogh died? We don't know. But friends, what I, I can tell you is that the reason you and I should have hope is because we know why Jesus died. You know, people think Jesus was murdered. That's not how Jesus saw it. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd does what? Lays his life down for the sheep. Talking to Pilate, what does Jesus say? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Jesus died. He rose again to reconcile sinners to God so they could enter his kingdom and never fear his rejection. Friends, this is what Jesus' parables are all about. This is why you should have hope. I mean, friends, if you think of all of the horrible things, I mean, if you could imagine like the good times in life and the horrible times in human history, if you could imagine the worst moments in human history, the lowest moment was when humanity crucified the Son of God in front of his mother because he came to teach us about the kingdom of God. Friends, God can take that wretched moment in human history and he can turn it around and make it the greatest moment in human history, the moment that literally redeems all of creation. <laughs> God can turn terrible situations and use them somehow to make all things new. Friends, this is why we have hope. You know, on, on the last week of Jesus' life, you know, after the, the grand entrance in Jerusalem, some guys, you know, they knock on the door. And you know what they say? It's, it's carved into my pulpit right here. They say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And you know what Jesus does? He says, well, uh, you know, a seed... It has to go into the ground, and it dies. You know, it's dead. It gets buried in the dirt. But then it grows, and new life happens. And they think, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? I just wanted to see you. I wanted to ask you questions. What Jesus says is, oh, you know, seeds go into the ground, but then new life comes. Friends, who is the seed? Jesus is the one who was buried, but new life came out of it. Friends, if God can make that true, is it possible that God is at work in your life? Friends, that's an invitation to have hope. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, we confess our lack of hope for this life. And Father, we do make it our confession. Lord, please forgive us for our lack of hope. Lord, I pray that we would become prayerful people. Uh, Lord, that when the harvest is ready to share the word of the gospel, that we would be ready to do that. Uh, Lord, we pray that, that when the harvest is ready, we would be ready to respond to the call of Jesus. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would teach us what it means to be people of hope. And Lord, thank you for teaching us that we don't change people, we don't control people. We are farmers dependent on the seed to grow. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would make all things new. 
and that you would call men and women. Lord, our beloved children, our friends, our neighbors, and Lord, that they would know the God who reconciles all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.